Welcome to part two of our DM discussion with John Four of RoleplayingTips.com. Without further ado, let's dive right into the next question. Let's see. Uh, Stuart asks, how much treasure experience and magic items should I award? Parentheses. Personally, I go for the approximately 14 encounters to level up approach, but I think it's hard for new DMs to know how much cash and magic is proper for each level. Well, I don't know. Are they giving it to me? Because then it's my maximum amount. <laughs> yeah. uh, more is the answer I would like. Thank you. More, more, <laughs> as much as possible. So I, I, I might have a different philosophy than, than regular GMs. First of all, I use milestone XP or milestone um, awards. The reason why I like that is um, what we reward is the behavior that we will get. So if we reward for killing monsters, then the players are going to kill monsters. And if we don't want that kind of a campaign or as much in that in the campaign, we only have ourselves to blame because this is the reward mechanism. This is the game engine that we've set up for them. I like putting treasure where it makes sense. For example, I'll take the most, uh, I'll ask my players, what do you want for magic items? They read all the things and say, I want this and I want this and I want this. And then I, I put them on NPCs that they have to defeat and I'll put them in use in the game so that they they know it's out there that now the game becomes how do i get that like a really powerful magic item that the the a character wants put it on an ally that's a really interesting dilemma so are they going to try to wow the ally and gain uh, respect and loyalty and earn it as an award are they going to try to steal it and, and whatnot so that becomes like a game with within the game otherwise i look at the economy of my setting what do PCs spend their money on? Like I make a list of this at the beginning of the campaign before session one. Are they going to be buying magic items? Are they going to be buying specialized equipment? Because we have to assume beyond like level um, three economy where you don't need anything under 500 gold pieces or you don't, you're tired of buying torches. You don't need them with your continual light spell anymore. Once I understand how they'll spend it, then I know at what pace and kind of where I want to award it. And then the rest I'll tie into basically story beats or like I said, the, the milestone uh, XP and or awards. I guess a trap to avoid is to put uh, all the best loot into some chest at the end of the adventure. Like the purpose of loot in sort of a mythical storytelling sense is that the characters evolve. So then they are now ready to approach the basically the monster. If the monster has all of the tools of victory after it's dead uh, to be awarded, then that's like you're missing out on a huge story structure gaming opportunity. Let the, your treasure be part of the solution and or option matrix and then put them at the right places so that the characters have these options available to them during the game. Because it's fun to use the magic items and stuff. So that was a bit rambly, but I think that's my answer. No, and I think it's a good answer because I just actually I just played in a game last night where there was a, we beat, I'm not going to say the big bad evil guy, but it was like one of the little mini bosses. We beat her right after that in the chest, come to find out there's an undead Bane bastard sword, which my character would have just, I mean, would have given her left foot for. Ah. So uh, for, for that reason, no, that is very frustrating when you find the exact same thing you need in the treasure hoard of the thing that you just killed. And I'm I'm of a similar belief. I do milestone XP. I mean, this makes for bad, I guess, talk radio where, you know, we we should be arguing about something. But I also do my... No, you're wrong. Exactly. (laughs) Shut up. It's my turn to answer. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I do milestone XP. I try to sprinkle uh, magic items and loot that is appropriate for what they need. A campaign that I'm preparing right now, it's Piracy in Saltmarsh. They're going to be pirates. Cool. So if they go and find, you know, if they find a, uh, I don't know, a potion, you know, like if you look at a, a pre-built adventure and it's a potion of jump, eh, 
Yeah. yeah. Congratulations. Okay. So it's a potion yeah. of acrobatics. Okay. Maybe somebody could use it down the road. Sure. I don't know. I do the same thing. I kind of find out what the players are actually looking for, what they want to spend money on. And then I try to sprinkle that in as I can. Nice. One of the common questions I get by email from readers and customers is how do I create puzzles? I think there's two kinds of puzzles. There's the puzzles that come out of a puzzle book or the original like really old school modules where you had a chessboard and you make the wrong move. They are what they are. And so I'm not going to talk about those. The other kind of puzzle that game masters are after though is sort of the, how do I make players think? How do I make this kind of a thinkery type of adventure? And so I, I think the answer in part is treasure. So if you are giving the characters levers and options that could possibly be of use later in the, in the scenario, then you're creating a puzzle because, okay, I've grabbed this. Say I get a helm of anti-pirate. That's strange. But then they encounter pirates and then they can use it. But the helm has flaws. And so the flaws mean that they can't speak and, and, or, or something like that. So they can't parley. And pirates love parley. So the magic items and no, your reward system, I think, is part of the puzzle that you create in that second type of puzzle that I'm talking about. And overall, I think it's a balancing act, especially as newer DMs. I mean, you want to throw loot at players. I mean, that's this, this temptation. You can just go, here's, look at all this cool stuff I'm giving you. Don't you love me now? Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, invariably, what winds up happening, and I, I made that I made that mistake early on where I was just throwing good loot at people, and you, know, you wind up with a you know, helm of brilliance, and you're level three or whatever. I yeah. wish I had one of those. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> especially to answer some of these questions that, the, that some, of my, some of my readers put in. You throw too much too soon, and next thing you know, they are just curb stomping their way through the rest of the adventure, and it's no yeah. fun. It's no challenge. There's no imminent threat of even being knocked down because, oh, look, here's the paladin with the plus four Vorpal sword again. Here we go. Lop, <laughs> lop, lop, and he's done. Okay, guys, you want to order a pizza? Nick or snack. Nice, nice Jabberwocky <laughs> reference. <laughs> and, and like another thought is I have an adventure building course, and in that course, I talk about budgets and it's not an accounting game, don't worry. Uh, but w let's say you know now that you want for this adventure the characters to be 3,000 gold pieces richer by the end of it, and you want them to be, say, 50,000 gold pieces in magic item worth richer by the end of it. Then you can chunk it out. So if right. you have that you make total interesting in cultures? your mind at the beginning, <laughs> Sorry, oh, then you can just say, okay, that's 25 a, boy, and that's a nasty uh, my one. Math is terrible How do you make interesting cultures? To me, the culture has to fit not only the environment that they live in, but the experiences of the group of people. If it's a primitive culture for whatever reason, because maybe there's been some sort of cataclysm on the planet and the art of creating magic items has been lost. So magic items are these rare, amazing things built from have. this almost untold past where thousands of years ago, we had these superior beings that lived on this planet and they created this amazing technology, and but it's all been lost. The, the culture would almost evolve revering this ancient civilization, you know, treating them almost as gods for lack of a better term. So to me, the culture of a group of people, whether you're talking about humans, dwarves, gnolls, what have you, a group of dwarves who had to fight their way through a horde of orcs to make the surface of the planet because they were fleeing from some untold horror behind them are going to have a certain very warlike belief system baked into their culture. Because their warriors sure. and their clerics and healers, their, their strategists are going to occupy the highest levels of society. They're going to be revered and treated as higher class citizens. 
Whereas uh, that same group of dwarves, if they never had to go through that fight, it might be in you know, their entire culture may be based on hereditary rule where Thane Johnson, the 14th, who was son of Thane Johnson, the 13th and so forth. It may just be all about reverence and the um, ties to nobility, if you will. So to me, it's it, that, that's where you really got to tie it in. And of course, you know, this, that same culture, uh, I'm picking on dwarves because, you know, they, they just happen to be nice and convenient. They are obviously built. You're being short with me? <laughs> no, but I will in a second uh, because uh, uh, <laughs> then I can turn to halflings and then gnomes. Uh, but uh, either group of dwarves that happen to um, treat underground as home versus underground as a thing to be feared. So they mm, migrate to nice. the to the hills. They live close to the rock that they love, but they still maybe fear it as a culture because of the things that it contains. That to me is the Excellent. key to making a culture is that it has to make sense. Did it evolve with a democratic type spin or was it more oligarchical? Maybe the uh, shortest dwarves are the ones that are the most p- racially pure and they're the ones that occupy areas of, of, of control over the entire society. Because the entire group of dwarves may be bigoted against any other race. Yeah, excellent. How do you try to uh, make a realistic culture out of a group of... My, here's my approach. The first thing is, I wrote an article on this uh, a long time ago. So if anyone Googles three-line cultures and finds a role-playing uh, tips link on Google, that's, that's a good article to read. In that article, I, I created like a three-step system. Because I think everything that you do as a game master should try to make its way to the table. And I, I think that in the world of fandom, great great example is Dune. Like Dune is on my radar now and in my echo chamber because of you know Absolutely. the trailer that came out. And the fans, well, Herbert, of course, was a was a maniac with amazing ideas. Um, maniac in a good way. So the fans, though, as on top of, of his work, like create this massive universe. Or another another big one with canon is Star Wars. And so I think that might be some people's expectations. Like as a game master, I'm I'm supposed to come into the game with this like library presence that the players are all, you know, kind of trying to grok. I don't think that's the case at all. Like we're just playing a game, the game moves at a quick pace, you know, kind of move on. Anyway, so I think when we go into culture building, we're not trying to create these in-depth, subtle, nuanced, intense things. We're just trying to create some some levers and some hooks for the characters and players to riff off of and and feel like they're part of something different than than real life. So I have a three-step framework for that. It's in this article. I'll just outline it briefly for pedantic reasons. Step one, figure out their beliefs. So you touched on that with with your dwarves. So figure out one or two or three things that this culture believes. Then for each belief, you turn that into an aim or a goal. So if I believe this, therefore I want this. And then your third step, and this is where uh, I want, want Game Masters to put it on the table, is to turn it into a ritual. So when the characters are encountering the culture at play, they're seeing the culture actually doing things. And then they could join in or not. But a, a ritual in, in a sense of like what do the people do on a regular basis? When it's that magical day of the year, I get happy birthday sung to me. That to me is a ritual. So to differentiate anybody who might be thinking of like cult or religious overtones, a ritual is just something that's like a, an, an ingrained habit that is triggered by, by an event or that has some rules written around it. So once you know what they want, then how they get that is ritualized. And that becomes then a cultural artifact. So if I express my aim through art, 
then I have this cultural artifact, pun intended, I guess, of art. If I express it through music, if I express it through how I train my Spartan warriors, if I express it through my form of government, and then you, you can Google culture and get a, a basically a, a list of all the aspects that go into our culture from our food to how we deal with birth and, and uh, death and things. But by making it a ritual or something tangible that NPCs can do, that buildings are about and whatnot, then the players get to actually experience it. And I think it becomes much more easy for the game master to detail and then, then role play. So the three-step framework, beliefs, aims, and rituals. One of the worlds that I'm adventuring in right now is Pathfinder Galarian. There's a great nation. Uh, I'm not sure how much uh, Pathfinder that you've played. Quite a bit in the day. Good, good. The nation of Galt is if the French Revolution just went on loop. They basically completed the revolution, wait a few years, and then they do another one. And then they wait a few years and they do another one. And they wait a few years and they do another one and so forth. And it becomes almost <laughs> the, uh, the act of rebelling and overthrowing the current leaders has become that ritual that you were talking about. Nice. Exactly. Perfect. Rather than, oh, I'm going to vote to cha- make changes. I'm going to propose new laws. No, it's, it's fark it. Uh, I need to behead somebody today. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's become their standard answer. That's almost their ritual of, of, of revolution has become almost this, for lack of a better term, religion for that entire nation. Like I thought about the topic, the question, how do you make an interesting culture? I think it would be good to turn it on its head. So like, what if we asked, how do we make a culture interesting? I think that's the same as making a faction or an NPC or even a magic item interesting. And again, I have a three kind of point hack for that. But that would be you, you give them a quirk, you give them a flaw, and then you give them a boon. The quirk is just some role play aspect, like they're angry or they're secretive or something like that. And now, now that's your cue to kind of figure out ad hoc, okay, how do these people behave secretly or angrily? With your um, flaw, that always creates a bit of attention. So let's say they're authoritarian, right? You get, if you disobey, you don't sing happy birthday, you're going to jail. And so whatever the flaw is of the culture from, a, from the character's perspective, not necessarily from the culture's own perspective, but like from the player, the most important perspective, the players, what do they see as the downside of this culture? There's an upside. They have this kind of quirk that's either fun or whatever. And then there's the downside of the flaw. And then the, the last one is boon, which is my short form for the, the players get something from it. So if they unlock the levers, if they play the game and win, or roll right, or do the things that they should, or whatever the game you set up is, then they get this benefit. And that brings it to the to the game table. So now there's a reason to interact with this culture beyond whatever your, your adventure is, or maybe it's tied together with your plot. But the culture itself, maybe they're, uh, one example is uh, gems. So back to the economy question, 5e sucks at spending money on. So not, not in real life, of course, it's quite the opposite, but- <laughs> That's a good point. Players, you give actually it's a fantastic curse. Like give players a million gold pieces. Here you go, people like spend it. That's that's the adventure right there. But uh, yeah, the rules are not really good at uh, extracting treasure one. So uh, what I do is I create a gem uh, a gem economy. So the first thing is that gems are are used by religions and politicians as symbols of status, and magic items use socketed magic items use gems to draw power on, and then the gems get burnt out and you have to replace it. So therefore. What players want is treasure or to go to markets and buy are gems to power their magic items to use as bribes and gifts and things. So once they figure that out, the culture gives them some kind of reward. They, they give the do the gem thing and then they get 
clues or they get a, a bonus XP or they get animal companion or just something. But the culture offers them uh, something that they would like and value. And I think that would make an interesting culture or the culture interesting. I've been editing like crazy, but there's just too much good stuff to cut this down any further. As a matter of fact, I'm expecting the last episode to go a little long. Please join us next time for the conclusion of our DM discussion with John Four of RoleplayingTips.com. 